Good morning, everyone. It's so good to see you and to gather together to worship our God and King, the Lord Jesus Christ. If you have your Bible, I invite you to turn it to Romans chapter 1. Romans 1, we are going to be looking at verses 18 to 23 this morning. Romans 1, verses 18 to 23. Now, I would like to begin with a word of prayer. Father, we come to you in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the only Savior given to this world to take away sins, the only mediator between God and man, the only truth and the only way, the only life, the bread of life, the door, the light of this world. It is Him that we've come to praise and whom we want to exalt this morning. We ask, Father, you bless our service, that your Spirit would help us to grasp the truth of your Word and to respond to it as your people. May you edify and build your church. And if there be any among us who are dead in sin, that today you would quicken them to understand your truth and to believe your gospel and to be forgiven of sins and to be granted eternal life. May you alone be glorified this morning. May you be pleased to bless the preaching of your word. We ask this in the name of Christ. Amen. About 11 years ago, uh, the PCUSA, which is the Presbyterian Church, USA, decided to reject a hymn from inclusion in their 800-song hymn book. The reason they wanted to reject this hymn was due to a particular line in the hymn. And the hymn was, In Christ Alone. Now, what line did they not like in this hymn? The line that says this, Till on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. Now, what is it that the PCUSA, which is largely liberal, to the extent that they ordain LGBTQ ministers and elders, what is it that they did not like about this, this hymn? They didn't like the wrath of God in this hymn. But what's interesting is that before they chose to reject it, they tried to have a change approved in this hymn in this line. What is the change that they wanted to make? It is this. Till on that cross, as Jesus died, the love of God was magnified. 
We don't want wrath. We want love. And thankfully, this change was itself rejected, hence it was not included in the hymn book. But this is a reflection of of the general sentiment, not only in the world, but even in the so-called church today, that we do not want a God of wrath. All we want is a God of love and nothing but love. But such a God is inexistent. Such a God does not exist. That's not the God of the Bible. The God that we find in Holy Scripture is a God of wrath. And saints, we cannot understand the cross of Jesus Christ apart from this reality. That God is a God of wrath. And this is why Paul begins the body of this letter in Romans with this doctrine. It is front-loaded in the body of Romans. It is the wrath of God. This is where Paul begins. I want to read this passage, and then we will make our way through it. Romans 1.18-23 The Word of God says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools." and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man, and of birds, and four-footed animals, and crawling creatures. Now the first thing I want you to notice, which is excluded in the NIV, if you have the NIV, is that this verse, verse 18, begins with the conjunction for. It explains something. It tells us that what Paul is saying in verse 18 is grammatically linked to what he said in verse 16 and 17. And in verse 16 and 17, Paul says that the gospel is God's power for salvation to everyone who believes. For in the gospel, God reveals His righteousness from faith to faith. That is the perfect, sinless holy righteousness of God, which mankind does not have, but needs to go to heaven to be reconciled to God, and which God gives freely as a gift to all who place their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The question is this, why does man, why does woman need the righteousness of God in the first place? 
This is the question Paul is going to answer extensively from Romans 1.18 all the way to Romans 3, verse 20. And the point he's going to hammer home is that man needs the righteousness of God because man has no righteousness of his own. That man is a sinner. That man is a criminal before God, deserving of his holy and righteous and just wrath. Now the gospel is good news, and that is the theme of this letter. But before the good news comes the bad news. And the bad news is very, very bad. And it begins with who God is and what he is like. And it begins with who man is and what he is like. And Paul paints a grim picture of humanity in these two and a half chapters. And, and Paul's creating a chasm between God and man. Because if we look at our culture, people don't view themselves as all that bad. They think they are pretty close to God when it comes to righteousness and goodness. And so what Paul is going to do is demolish that idea. And he's going to create this separation and, and show us that God is up here and that man is down here. That God is holy. That man is evil. And it begins with God. So if you take notes, the first point I want to give you, the first heading is the revelation of God's wrath. The revelation of God's wrath. This is what we see at the beginning of verse 18. Paul says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven. Now what is God's wrath? God's wrath is not as many people think God blowing his lid and losing control and, and reacting emotionally against sin, unrighteously against sin. Losing control. That is man's wrath. That is how we react often. This is how we react. We have an emotional response to sin. We, we react in anger, often disproportionate to the offense if there was an offense to begin with. You see this, for example, if, if you watch the news or you watched the Super Bowl, that one of the players was enraged with his coach. That is the, man, the, the wrath of man. Uncontrolled anger. Blowing his lid. But this is the wrath of God, Paul says. And God is not like you and me. So what is God's wrath? wrath the wrath of God is His retributive justice. It is His measured and appropriate response to sin. It is his punishment against sin, which is always controlled and measured. Now, when we think of, of the wrath of God, it is displayed in many different ways in the Bible. You might think of, of fire and brimstone in Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 19. Or you might think of the flood, where God flooded the earth except for eight people. Or you might think of, of the plagues God unleashed upon Egypt in Exodus 7 to 11. You know, those cataclysmic judgments in the past. Others think of God's wrath in the future, of Judgment Day, 
the day of wrath. When God will bring every unrepentant sinner before him and judge each and every single sinner according to each and every single sin that they have committed against him. And then we think of God's eternal wrath. Eternity in hell, where God will pour out His righteous indignation upon sinners in hell without end. Of eternal misery. But God's wrath is not always so flashy, if I could put it that way. It's not always fire and brimstone. It's not always the flood. It's not always plagues. Sometimes God's wrath is more more quiet. For example, in Hebrews 3, verse 11, the author of Hebrews tells us that in God's wrath, he did not allow the Israelites to enter the promised land. That was the wrath of God. It was their punishment for ongoing rebellion against God, unbelief, constantly grumbling against Him after the exodus. In my wrath, God says, I have sworn, they shall not enter my rest. The promised land. This is the wrath of God. And so God's wrath is not always fire and brimstone. And it's not just past and future. It is a present reality. Notice what Paul says. God's wrath is revealed. It is constantly revealed. It is constantly being manifested, made known, day after day after day. Because as Psalm 711 says, God is a righteous judge who has indignation every day. Every day God pours out His wrath from heaven. And we ask the question, well, how do we see God's wrath today? That's what Paul is going to answer for us next week in the passage we'll look at then. But for now, Paul is concerned with the who and the why. Who are the recipients of God's wrath? And why are they the recipients of God's wrath? What are the reasons for God's wrath? And so the second heading I want to give you is the recipients of God's wrath. The recipients of God's wrath. Paul says the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Mankind is the recipient of God's wrath. But notice, not simply because they are men and women. Paul says it is because of ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. So if God simply poured out His wrath on humanity for being humans, He would be an unjust judge. He would be a tyrant, a cosmic bully. But it is because of the ungodliness and unrighteousness of man that demands this, this justice. And notice, notice the word all. All unrighteousness. All ungodliness. God hates all sin. God must punish all sin. God opposes all sin. There are not some sins that God is okay with and other sins that God is not okay with. There are not some sins that God simply sweeps under the rug. It is all repulsive to God. 
Now, man rationalizes sin, don't they? It's not that bad, what I've committed. What they did is worse. We rationalize our sin. Man renames his sin. Oh, it was a white lie, not a black lie. It's a sickness, but it's certainly not a crime. Or it's called being human. Or it's a mistake. Man redirects blame for his sin. The devil made me do it. It's the woman you have given me. Passing the buck. But God does not sugarcoat anything. He does not rename, rationalize, redirect, blame. He says it is all ungodliness and unrighteousness. What's the difference between the two? Ungodliness and unrighteousness. Ungodliness is vertical. It is your approach and your relationship with God. It is your evil attitude toward God. It is man's evil actions that refuse to glorify God. It is to dishonor God. It is to not acknowledge God for being God. It's a failure to worship Him. It's vertical. Unrighteousness is horizontal. It is man's evil attitude and actions against other people. It is the breaking of God's commandments in our interpersonal relationships. And one flows out of the other. Unrighteousness flows out of ungodliness. Because if a person is ungodly and irreverent toward God, the result is going to be that they are going to be unrighteous to fellow men who are made in the image of God. And so your attitude toward God, your relationship with God, impacts your relationship with people. So the picture that we have here is that of man taking the two tablets of stone, the Ten Commandments, the summary of God's law, the reflection of His perfect righteousness. And on the first tablet, most likely, you have the commandments that are vertical, dealing with a relationship with God. And on the second tablet is the horizontal commandments, dealing with relationships with men and other uh, human beings. And, and men and women grab these two tablets and they smash them before God in rebellion and say to God, I will not obey your law. And we reject the lawgiver. Well, this demands justice. This demands righteousness. It demands wrath. And so please notice that immediately we are confronted with a God who is holy, just, and who hates all sin, and who is a God of wrath, quite different from the God who is all love and tolerance and acceptance being preached in so many pulpits this very morning. Immediately we're confronted with, with what we are as people, what, with what humanity is. Not good, not innocent, but sinners, godless, unrighteous, justly deserving the wrath of God. Paul's presentation of God's redemptive message, notice, begins with the wrath of God. And this is where you and I must begin when we share Christ with others. 
with the wrath of God. Not with Jesus loves you. Not with God has a wonderful plan for your life. But with who God is. Holy, just, a God of wrath. And who they are. Guilty before Him. Because people cannot receive the message of how to be saved until they understand what they are saved from, why they need to be saved, and why Jesus Christ is the only way of salvation. The diagnosis must come before the cure. And we must show people, this is what you are. This is who God is. This is your destiny unless you repent and believe in Christ. It begins with God. But please notice, it's not just that men do bad things, that they sin. Sin is the symptom. The problem is much, much deeper. We need to get at the root of the problem and ask the question, what is the ultimate reason man abides under God's wrath? And what Paul will do in the rest of chapter 1 is show us how man is ungodly, and then show us how man is unrighteous. And unrighteousness flows out of ungodliness. And so if you take notes, Paul gives us three reasons in our passage why men abide under the wrath of God. And so the third heading is the reasons for God's wrath. The reasons for God's wrath. And there are three of them here. Number one, he says at the end of verse 18 that men suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Paul says men are not ignorant of the fact that God exists. They know. But they suppress this truth, the reality of God's existence, with unrighteousness. This is all of unredeemed humanity. And this was all of us at one point in time. Men suppress. To suppress something means to resist it or to restrain it. And it's a present tense verb that, that they constantly are suppressing this truth. And so the picture we have here is that, that the truth continually presses in upon their conscience and they continually suppress it with wickedness. And so sin is like the drug that minds their mind to the reality of God. That's the truth that Paul's talking about. They suppress the truth. What truth? Not one plus one equals two. The truth about God. Look at verse 19. He says, that which is known about God. It's kind of like the beach ball illustration. I don't know if you've ever heard the beach ball illustration. Um... You have a beach ball, or you're in the ocean, or in a swimming pool, and if you've ever tried this, you try to push the beach ball beneath the water, and what does the beach ball want to do? It wants to come up, but you're constantly having to suppress it and to keep it down. That's the imagery. That the truth of God's existence is constantly pressing in upon people's conscience, and they in their wickedness reject it and try to put it out of their minds. And notice, all people know God exists. Look at verse 19. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, 
for God made it evident to them. Realize, God has given every single human being to ever exist, who exists today, who will exist, evidence of His existence. And this evidence is not available to a select few, to scholars, to people with a certain IQ level. You don't have to learn to arrive at this knowledge. Paul says every person has this within them. Presently, ongoingly, has this evidence within them that in their heart of hearts they know God exists. Like a perpetual witness on the stand. Why do they know? Because God Himself made it evident to them. He made it plain to the eye. You cannot miss it. It is obvious. Saints, this is God's way of telling you and me there is no such thing as an atheist. There is no such thing as an agnostic. But only people who suppress the truth of God's existence in rebellion to God. The question is, how has God made His existence known? Look at verse 20. For since the creation of the world... His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. Since the creation of the world, Paul says, since day one, since time began, people have evidence for God in creation. And not just the earth, but the universe. The universe all of which display his invisible attributes. Now, now, this is what theologians call general or natural revelation. General or natural revelation teaches us that nature itself is evidence of God's existence. Creation points to a creator. It reveals His invisible attributes. God is invisible in His pure essence. He's spirit. He has no body. So He cannot be seen. But Paul says His invisible characteristics can be perceived by looking at His handiwork, creation. Creation points to a Creator. And so if I could give you a, a Ray Comfort illustration. Just like a painting tells you there was a painter. Even if he died 500 years ago, the painting tells you the painter existed. If you see a building, you must conclude there was a builder. And so with the painting, the painting itself reveals certain attributes, qualities of the painter. That he was skilled. That he was artistic. That he had precision. That he was intelligent. Creative. It reveals the painter's attributes and therefore it reveals the painter's existence. In the same way, creation, what God made, which we can see with our eyes, even if you turn to the left or to the right, you see trees, just like the painting, tell us God exists. And notice, what does it reveal? 
His eternal power, he says. His eternal power. God is eternal. All of his attributes are eternal. This is his omnipotence with which he simply spoke galaxies into existence. It keeps them in place. With which he formed the world and the seas and the mountains. Creation tells you the creator has unfathomable power. He's omnipotent. And this is why many of the prophets and Paul, when he was preaching in Mars Hill for the Gentiles, what did he go to? The God who has made the heavens and the earth. He is Lord. The omnipotence of God, seen in creation, demands worship of this creator. Whoever made this thing is in charge. Whoever created this whole thing rules. He reigns. In his divine nature. His godness. A lot of uh, commentators have said this, this includes other attributes of God. His infinite wisdom. His sovereign power over his creation. His genius. His, his design. These all clearly... Show. It's clearly seen, Paul says, presently, continually. But then look at this. Not only seen, but understood. Being understood through the things that have been made. It's reasonable. It's logical. It makes sense. That this is no accident. That there's order in the universe. This isn't a result of blind chance. A cosmic mastermind was involved here. All the mind-bending detail. The complexity of the cell alone, now that we can look at the cell. People see and understand. They know God exists. The fingerprints of God are all over the place. This is the Psalm 19 of the New Testament. Psalm 19, 1 and 2. The heavens are telling of the glory of God and their expanse is declaring the work of His hands. Day to day pours forth speech and night to night reveals knowledge. Knowledge of what? Knowledge that He is. April 8th, 2024. There's going to be a, to a total solar eclipse. And if you're in Dallas, Texas, between 12.23 in the afternoon and 3.02, and especially at 1.42, according to a website, you're going to see a full solar eclipse where the moon is going to eclipse the sun and fit perfectly within the sun. And all you're going to see is a ring of light around the moon. Do you know how much has to go right for that to happen? The sun has to be a certain size, the moon has to be a certain size, and the distance has to be perfect, and, and, and the orbit has to, to be moving along the way, in a properly order for this to even happen. 
Now, the leading theory for how the moon was created or originated is that an object, a planet the size of Mars, collided with the world 4.5 billion years ago, and that, that part of the Earth uh, was flung into space, and now it's the moon. And it just so happens to be perfect that you can have a, an eclipse. Genesis 1.14 says that on the fourth day, literal 24-hour days, God created the sun and the moon, not only for seasons, but for what? Signs. A sign of what? Hey, I'm here. Look at my detail. Look at my genius. Look at my power. You can see that April 8th. And if you go to Dallas, Texas on April 8th, I want you to think of this text. Just a cosmic witness telling you God is. Don't let the secular evolutionist steal this from you, Christian. This is your Father's world. When people ask you, where is the evidence for God? You point them to creation. The design, the detail, the intelligence. You tell them you are not an animal but a man or a woman created in the image of God with an eternal soul that is going to spend eternity somewhere, one of two places. And that this is the evidence. No way that happened by accident. And it's my understanding, I haven't researched it enough, but that there are eclipses that can be seen from multiple planets which have moons. Is it all random? It's not random. They know the truth. They see, they understand. What's the result? Look at the end of verse 20. They are without what? Excuse. What does that mean? It means that on the day of judgment, on the day of wrath, people will not be able to say to God, I did not know you exist. There was no evidence, God. And no one is going to be able to present any defense before God. All will stand rightly condemned, deserving God's just wrath. Because He told you. I exist. This is my creation. This is my world. My universe. There's something very important we need to understand here, saints. Creation, general or natural revelation, is enough to tell people God exists. But it's not enough to save anyone. They are without excuse. Remember, Romans 1.18 to 3.20, what's Paul arguing? Why a man stands rightly condemned before God. He's not gone to the gospel yet. He's not talking about how can man be saved. What he's saying is they know God exists. And that's not enough to save. What does a person need to be saved? They need special supernatural revelation found in the gospel message of Jesus Christ. They need to hear about Jesus Christ, what he has done to save sinners, and repent and place their faith and trust in him alone for salvation. 
Now, can God use general revelation to begin to draw someone and a person will respond and, and God will bring the gospel to their ears so that they can be saved? Yes. But apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ, special revelation, no one can be saved. No one can be saved. So people know the truth. They reject it. What happens next? This leads to a failure to glorify God. Reason number two, a failure to glorify and honor God. Verse 21 and 22. Look at verse 21. For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks. When people suppress the truth that creation offers, the evidence, they will in turn reject and fail to glorify the God of creation. Even though they knew God. Again, not savingly, but generally. They know He exists. They, they knew God's existence. Now why is Paul speaking here in the past tense? They knew God. Not they know God. They knew God. Paul is speaking here in the past tense because he is describing the course of human history and experience. That this is the result of the fall. That this is why men need God's righteousness. This is what men need to be saved. But instead, he says, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks. In spite of creation, in spite of the witness that demands the Creator glory and honor, they refuse Him honor. They don't acknowledge God. They don't recognize God and treat God as God. Nor do they give thanks. Thanks for what? Thanks for life. Thanks for creation. Thanks for all the things that we enjoy. Thanks for the seasons and the rain and the food. They failed to give God what God is due. Praise and thanksgiving. They love the gifts, they hate the giver. They love to take, 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 and never give. And what are the consequences of this rejection to glorify God? There are always consequences for a failure to worship God in time and eternity. You're either for Him or against Him. There is no middle ground. What are the consequences? Paul states the same consequence essentially in three different ways. Look at verse 21. He says, But they became futile in their speculations. Their thoughts became worthless. They set their minds now on, on useless things. Their reasoning capacity became, became corrupt. Why? Because when you turn away from God you turn away from the storehouse of all true knowledge and wisdom. You're not just rejecting God. You're, you're rejecting all true wisdom and knowledge. And so you're going to turn to futile speculations. They removed God from the equation. And when you remove God from the equation, you're always going to end up with the wrong results. This is how you end up with out of nothing comes everything. Nothing went boom. And voila, we have a universe with perfect order and precision and detail. 
Well, isn't that science? No, that's faith. Faith in what? Faith in chance. Faith in time, lots and lots of time. And faith in nothing. A mighty nothing at that. In the beginning, nothing created the heavens and the earth. The fool's God is, the fool's creator is, is chance, and his equation is chance plus time equals everything. Then Paul says, And their foolish heart was darkened. The heart is the locus of your being, your mind, your intelligence, your emotions, your will. Paul says their, their minds are foolish. Again, without reasoning capacity. And not only that, the minds were darkened. Spiritually blinded now and, and ignorant to, to spiritual realities. They, they may be smart in a lot of earthly things. I'm not, I'm not poo-pooing science in general that is observable and testable in actual science, but the theories that they have. They're spiritually ignorant now. And they have no real answer for people with the big questions of life. Why am I here? Why does everything exist? What's my purpose? Where am I going when I die? The answer to all of those questions from the evolutionist and the atheist is, sorry, it's just the grim reality of things. They're left to perceive the world around them through a godless lens and to reinterpret the evidence of creation by removing the intelligent God. Because the spiritual does not exist. We need a natural explanation. Give me chance and give me time and I'll make it happen. Or if, if an intelligent being was involved in life on earth, perhaps it was an advanced alien civilization who planted humans upon this earth. Like leading atheistic biologist Richard Dawkins has proposed in an interview. Anything except a holy God. His right-hand man recently got saved, by the way. You should watch that interview. It's, it's, it's awesome when that happens. Interview with, with uh, Ray Comfort. Paul then summarizes in verse 22, professing to be wise, they became fools. To profess something here means to assert boldly. Look at us. We are the experts. Boldly con asserting and boldly stating, we have the knowledge, we have the wisdom, ongoingly, continually, and this led to them ending up as fools. The Greek word for fools there is moron. They became morons. It's a biblical word. Moranos. Don't we see that in the world today? And you can be a woman if you want to be. You can marry a roller coaster. Believer, you are not the fool for believing. 
They are the fools for rejecting the evidence. Psalm 14.1 The fool has said in his heart, No God. There's not even a verb in that, in that verse. It's more emphatic. The fool has said in his heart, No God. Notice he's trying to convince himself. He's speaking to himself. No God. No. No, we come from monkeys. No, no God. And as I shared in my class this morning, the worst consequence of this, this whole thing with, with, with evolution and, and naturalism and all this, in the end, kids are being taught to reject the spiritual realm. No spiritual realm, no God. No spiritual realm, I am only an animal, I'm only flesh and blood, I have no eternal spirit, I have no eternal soul. Therefore, I'm going to enjoy my life on earth as much as I can, indulge in my sin, live how I, how, how I want to live, let me eat and drink for tomorrow, I die, and then when it's all done and said with, I'm going to disappear. There is no judgment. There is no day of reckoning. There is no wrath. That's the tragedy. That's the goal Satan has with this whole thing. Remove God. Remove the spiritual. There is no judgment day. Suppress the truth. You're left without excuse. Refuse to glorify God and thank Him. You're left a fool. Spiritual darkness. But it doesn't end there. Because whether people like to admit it or not, everyone was created to worship. Everyone has been created with an innate need and desire to worship. And if you turn away from God as your God, you're going to turn to idolatry. Violation of the first tablet. The third reason I want to give you, turn to idols. That's why the wrath of God is coming. Because men are idolaters. Look at verse 23. They exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. What is the height of folly? Idolatry. Turning from the Creator to worship the creation. That is the height of folly. It's the foolish exchange. They, they exchanged. That means to replace. They replaced God with what? With idols. And he says the glory of God. The glory of God simply represents all that God is. Romans 3.23 All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They fall short of God. And he says incorruptible God. That, that means he is imperishable. He does not decay. He is eternal. And they replaced it with an image in the form that is idols made to resemble corruptible, perishable, temporal creatures, just like Israel and the golden calf. They exchanged God for garbage, diamonds for dung, life for death, heaven for hell. What a foolish exchange. Now today we don't really have as many 
idol figurines as they did in the ancient world, but idolatry is very much alive and well. Because anything you ascribe worship to more than God, that is your idol. It can be sports, it can be fashion, it can be popularity, it can be books, it can be candy, it can be anything. Anything you turn into something that is the object of your praise and what you live for, that is your idol. And isn't it interesting here, one commentator pointed out, what's the first idol in the list? In the form of man. Let's replace God with man. Let's say one of the idols today is the expert. Let, let him tell me what, what is true and what to do. Because ultimately, saints, the ultimate idol behind every idol is me. It's you. It's humanity. You shall be as God. This is why the wrath of God has come, why it is coming, and as we will see next week, why it is here today, and how do we see it today. It's everywhere. Very much present in Santa Fe, let me tell you. Now, to those of us, in conclusion here, who have believed the gospel and are covered with the, the perfect righteousness of Christ. How do we respond to these truths? Let me give you three ways. Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. That He has brought the gospel to our ears. That He has given us a heart to understand and receive the gospel message. That He has given us now true wisdom and knowledge in the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank Him for creation. Thank Him for all has, He has given us to enjoy every day. Secondly, rejoice in your salvation. That Christ has rescued you from the wrath to come. But then third, tremble. Tremble. The Bible uses the wrath of God as a motivator for the saints to live a holy life. As we understand, this is what nailed our Savior to the cross. And I hate this sin. Listen to what Peter says in 2 Peter 3, 10-12. But the day of the Lord, the day of wrath, will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burnt up, since all these things are to be destroyed in this way. What sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning, and the elements will melt with intense heat." We react to God's wrath with reverence, fear, trembling. And we use that to live a holy life. Always resting in the finished work of Christ. But for you, maybe here this morning or listening online who suppress the truth 
the evidence of creation and worship other stuff. That you have idolatry in your life and a different sorry excuse for God. You need to understand that the wrath of God abides on you. And if you don't turn away from sin and if you die in your sins, you will have no excuse before God. Not only because of natural revelation, but because of special revelation which you are receiving this very moment and which you are responsible to respond to. You've already heard God is just and holy, a God of wrath, that He must punish all of your sins. He will leave none of them undealt with, and His punishment is an eternity in hell, unending agony, torment, despair, separation from all that is good. That's the bad news. But the good news is that in His mercy, God sent His only begotten Son 2,000 years ago, born of a virgin, and that He lived a perfect, holy, righteous life, obeying every ordinance and commandment of God, fulfilling a perfect righteousness, the righteousness of God which you do not have and which you need to go to heaven to be reconciled to God, He has accomplished. And then He went to the cross willingly, voluntarily, to die in the place of sinners, to die as a substitute for their sins, till on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. For in Him, and in Him alone, is salvation. And He said on that cross, it is finished. The work has been done. Now repent and believe the Gospel. Repent and believe in the Savior who has risen again from the grave. And you will be saved. Salvation is a gift. You are saved by grace through faith, not as a result of works, lest any man should boast. Not, not as a result of your religion, of your good deeds, of how good you think you are, because you're not good at all. God's word's not mine. But you are saved only based on the merit and work of Christ. If you believe in Him and trust Him with all your heart, He will give you the righteousness of Christ and He will take away all of your sins and give you eternal life as a free gift. And you will receive the, power, the Holy Spirit, the, the Spirit of power, who will enable you then to live a holy life. Apart from God, you cannot live a life pleasing to Him. It begins with salvation. It begins with repentance, and it begins with faith. God commands you this very moment to repent and believe this gospel. It's not a suggestion from God. It's not one of many options for you. The first word out of the mouth of Christ, repent, command, believe the gospel. John 3.36 says, He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, eternal life, but the wrath of God abides on him. And to the saints in closing, this time I promise, you cannot replace God's wrath with love. Because it is by the wrath which He poured upon His Son on the cross, 
which is the ultimate and most terrifying display of wrath, in which he demonstrated what? His love. Romans 5, 8. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. Do not leave this building not knowing where you stand with God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this book, so rich, so instructive, so convicting. And as your redeemed people, we read these words not with the sense that we are condemned eternally, for there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, but we read these words and we give thanks and praise that you have redeemed us and saved us from the wrath to come. Father, we cannot save anyone. It is a work of the Spirit. It is your work. And we ask you as your people, for all those who will hear this message, that the Spirit Himself will take these truths and plant them deep, deep within the unbeliever, resulting in eternal life through regeneration, repentance, and faith. And we ask all of this in the precious name of Your Son, Jesus Christ.